In 2007, 14-year-old Devante Sanford was convicted of a quadruple homicide in Detroit that he did not commit. He was interrogated twice overnight without a parent or lawyer present and was coerced into a false confession. Devante would go on to spend almost nine years in prison for the Runyon Street murders, despite the fact that someone else, hitman Vincent Smothers, confessed to the crime only weeks after Devante was incarcerated. Upon his release in 2016, Devante founded a nonprofit organization, Innocent Dreams. His goal became helping other young men who may fall victim to the criminal justice system. Now, Devante recalls his journey from the time before his arrest through his release. This is Innocent Dreams. I'd like to hear from you all. What is a warrior to you? After spending nearly nine years in prison for a quadruple homicide he did not commit, Detroit's Devante Sanford is committed to using his struggle to help others. I'm Devante Sanford. I'm 24 years old and I'm the founder of Innocent Dreams. I'm here now to share my story. I'm not here to play the blame game. I'm here to be positive. I'm grateful for where I am today and the people who helped me get out. My hope is that some part of my experience can someday be helpful to someone else who finds himself where I was. What is the true definition of a warrior? Is it his muscles? Or is it the way he thinks when it comes to strategies? What is the true definition of a warrior? Is it his body count? Or is it the way he shows restraint under very tense conditions? What is the true definition of a warrior? Is it the sword and shield? Or is it his heart? We're here with Devante Sanford, the Detroit man recently released from prison where he served almost nine years for a quadruple homicide he did not commit. Uh, first off, I want to thank everyone around the country, around the world, who helped my family through this, uh, this difficult, very, very, very hard struggle. Um, it's finally over now. Now I would like to take this time to unite with my family, try to get my life back. You know, and I'm, I'm not about to play the blame game. Like, it's over. I'm out. What was your first meal when you got home? Uh, sesame chicken, egg rolls, and fried rice. <laughs> um, I've been craving Chinese food for about four years. Devante, have you thought about what you might want to do in the future or as a career going forward? I most definitely would like to work with at-risk youth and, and work with juveniles in the, in the justice system, especially when it comes to criminal justice. Like juveniles serving 30, 40 years, at age 16 years old, you, you're sending them into a place where there's, there's no second chance. There's no, the treatment in there is terrible. And what's gonna happen to them in 30 years when you release them? 
There's no counseling or help you can get to make you forget about what happened when you've been through something like this. Devante, what kept you going in the hardest moments? My mother. And I, I would receive letters from people all over the country, from like all over the world that I'd never met. And, and they would tell me, Devante, you're getting out of prison. You know, so that, so that, that motivated me a lot, like a whole lot. And it reminded me, like, I'm not supposed to be here. I had no choice but to, but to grow, make the most of it, especially like, like some of the things I want to do with the juveniles and the justice system. I had no choice but to, but to grow, learn how to read, things like that. I knew to get somewhere in life, I had to have some education. I didn't want to get out of prison, you know, whether it was eight years, 10 years, 20 years, and be stuck in the same place in life. Devante, do you have any hurt feelings? How did you, how did this sit with you all this time? I mean, well, of course I was angry, mad, but at the end of the day, being angry, mad, it doesn't do nothing, it just hurts you. What's the use of being mad? What would you say to young men who are incarcerated right now who may have been wrongly convicted? Mm, um, keep fighting. Don't give up, you know? You gotta stay strong. And if you know you're in prison for something you didn't do, just don't roll over. Don't let them break you. I was almost close to that breaking point many times. I just stay positive. Before my arrest, okay. Uh, I liked music and art in middle school. I played the flute in middle school band. Uh, and our art teacher would give us two or three dollars for a painting. You know, so I would do splash paint and uh, free lines and, and paint 30, 40 lines of color on a white surface. And I think if that's art, I can do that. <laughs> um, but I also liked music class in middle school. I remember we performed the, the eagle, the, the flying eagle song one time. I could play the flute. Everyone learned the flute in middle school. You know, we had a, a very passionate music teacher. Uh, and we rented out equipment, and it was expensive to order flutes, like $14 a piece flutes. But they got it, so each student got a flute, and parents only had to pay like seven. So that was middle school. And... I was in high school briefly, and then I was arrested at 14. This is not the land of liberty and justice for all. This is the land of the poor. This is the land of the sinful. This is the land of the pain. That first night, the first night I went to my Auntie Cheryl's house and ate. Uh, I was like playing on the computer down in the basement and all the adults, they, they called me upstairs to eat. And I, I remember the last thing I ate. My, my aunt, she cooked um, roast potatoes and carrots. 
I stayed there for a while. Then my aunt's boyfriend took me, my mom, and my little sister home. My sister's dad came over and he took my mama to the gas station. And on the way back, she had she had seen all the like police cars and stuff like that. And when she came in the house, she was like, "Don't come outside. You know, like the police are all over." Um, she said something had happened, but I wasn't paying that much attention to it. You know, um, she said, don't go outside because something happened, but I, I just went outside anyway. And that's, that's why I listen to her to this day. You know, cause she said, don't come outside. But I lived on a corner block. I stepped to the corner and I saw some cop cars, but you know, I, I thought nothing of it. Um, I had been talking to this girl, uh, Ashley, and she said I could come over to her house. She lived like five, six, seven blocks away. I walked up to the street and the police saw me. At first I had just seen like police dogs. Um, then I saw police going house to house. And I went to go back in and I would stop like half a block from the crime scene. Then I came out there, I sat right there at the corner and I had seen news vans and police cars had like had that area blocked off. Um, I started walking up the street, and that's when Sergeant Russell uh, he started asking me questions, like, "What's my name? Where do I live? Um, things like that. Like, have I have I heard or seen anything?" And I told him I didn't know nothing. You know, I explained that I had been with my great auntie's boyfriend, who was the former head of the Detroit Police Homicide Section, and Colin said, "Like, oh." You know, I know, I know Bill Rice. Like that's my man. You know, they called him and he confirmed. Yeah, he, he was, he was with me. Um, and I told him, look, like, I don't, I don't know nothing. Uh, they put Bill on the phone and he was like, all right, if you know something, say something. These guys, are my friends, help them out if you do know something. You know, but I told him I didn't, I didn't know nothing. So that's, that's when they said that they wanted to question me. So they brought me back to my house to get a consent form from my grandmother, and and they asked me like, was those the clothes I've been wearing all day? Because I had on some some pajama pants um, and some gym shoes and and, uh, and a hoodie. I got in the car with Tolbert and Russell and Collins. Um, Tolbert was was head of the major crimes division, and we drove around to the crime scene. Did a gunshot ballistics test. They got my consent in the parking lot. I left Tolbert and I was in a car with uh, Russell and Collins. And we went to the Coney Island, got something to eat. Um, cheeseburger, chili cheese fries, and fruit punch. And we went back to 1300 Bobian where I ate. Um, they let me get on the computer. You know, they were They were friendly. Like, it wasn't hostile at all. My first statement was took. Uh, they all left, and I spent the night at 1300 Bobby and sleeping on the couch. I was, I was woken up by Barbara Simon, the, the homicide investigator, and she had my statement. She's like, you know, sign your name here, 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 and here. And I told her, I, I can't read. But she said, just sign your initials. So I was then taken to the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office. And I stayed in the room for half an hour while the detective spoke with prosecutors. And then they took me home. And I knew I knew we had talked about who could have done it, but I was I was too tired to really remember anything. This is the land of the filth.
This is the land of the freed. This is the land of the suffering. This is the land of conflict. The second night, uh, the second night they took me, I was asleep on the couch when they came. They, they knocked on the door and my grandma was cooking and she let them in. You know, they, they didn't have a warrant, but she let them in. And Sergeant Russell came over and he, he tapped me while I was asleep and he was like, can you get up? Um, and then they asked me if they could speak to my mother and then they told my mother that they needed to talk to me. And Russell told my mom that they just want to talk to me one more time and they promised they would bring me home and they promised me that I would be back home to go to school the next day. Um, and Sergeant Russell, he told me I needed to get up and come with them and I, and I told him I needed my shoes. Um, so I went to the back of my house to get my shoes. Not the same shoes as the night before. Uh, and when I walked back to the front of the house, you know, there was Sergeant Russell, a detective, and my mother all sitting there on the couch. And my mother was in the middle. And they talked to my mother and they said, they said they thought I knew something and they needed to talk to me again. And they told my mother that they thought I was lying. And, you know, I told them repeatedly, I was like, I don't know nothing. I don't know nothing. And my mother said, you know, like, if I know something, I needed to tell him. And I said, I said, yeah, like I saw a crime or whatever, but I don't know nothing. And Sergeant Russell, he had this little yellow little notepad and he wrote out a consent form on it and he had my mother sign it. Stuff changed when I got in the car. You know, they, they said they knew I knew something during the drive and they found blood on my shoes, which they had kept from before. And I was, I was panicking. I was like, what? Like, how could y'all find blood on my shoes? Like, y'all did not find blood on my shoes. But he told me they, they found the blood and that they had already tested it. I lied and said my dog had, had gotten into a fight and like, that's what the blood was. But they said it was human blood. Not, not dog blood. When I got there, the interrogation started. And the environment was, was different and I was, I was scared because I didn't know what was going on and, and you know everything was happening so fast. And there was like four or five people in the room, all men. Sergeant Russell kept telling me, you think this is a game? Look at these people. He started showing me pictures of the dead bodies. He had, he had one of those little, those little silver digital cameras with a small screen, and he was flipping through, showing me all the photos. Like, for real. I'll never forget that. I will, I'll never forget those pictures. And they was coming in and out, and they was taking turns asking me questions. And, I mean, they would be in there with me for like 20, 30, like 40 minutes at a time. They stepped out the room, Tolbert came in and sat right next to me and he slapped a piece of paper in front of me and he drew the diagram of the house on it and he told me to draw where the bodies was at. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know where the bodies was at. So then he drew the whole diameter of the house and he said, if I showed him where the bodies was at, then he would make sure that I went home. And they had already shown me the pictures of the bodies. So I'm like, I know from that where the bodies were at. So maybe if I do this, I'll go home. I just wanted to go home.
So I drew him and signed it, and Tolbert was like, I told y'all, I told y'all. And Russell was like, look, that's all you got to do is be honest with us. The phone rang, and Russell said, we have to hurry up and so we can get you home. Tolbert kept telling me he was going to take me home. And my mom called, and they said, we need to finish the statement up quick so you can go home. He said once I signed a statement, he would take me home. He took me to the precinct so I could record it. They took me to the precinct and took my fingerprint and picture. They told me, no, that's, that's just something they do to everybody. Don't worry about it. And that's when they did the tape confession. They told me if I said something, I'd get to go home. And I believed them in what they were saying. I told them the story that they had written out for me on the paper. And in my confession, they wanted two other people in my plea agreement, so I gave them names. Um, two cousins during the trial process. I never told them the weapon. There wasn't a weapon. My older cousins never got in trouble, but they had alibis. Well, I was the only one arrested. Okay. Now, I need you to sign the bottom of this page, and the next page. Now, is there anything else that you left out about this case on Runyon? No. Okay. Is everything accurate the way you described it to me? Yes. Is everything truthful? Yes. And you're 14? Yes. We've had a lot of conversations yesterday and today, and uh, you seem like you've got a, a lot of street experience. Yes. You do? Yes. Well, I, I really hope that you take advantage of some opportunities you've still got given to you, because this is a terrible thing that happened. You know that. I uh, know. You know. I'm sure there's no counseling or help you can get to make you forget about what happened. No. Hopefully one day you can be forgiven. Because this is terrible. We have a lot more investigating to do. We've got grieving families out there. People lost their families, their loved ones, you know? Well, uh, I appreciate you contacting me. You came around and I appreciate it. After the interview was over, I'm thinking, okay, I'm about to go home. This is it. But when I got in the back of the car, he told me I wasn't going home. He said, look, man, I, I can't take you back home. You know, you just confessed to four counts of murder. I was going to juvenile. You know, I, I didn't know what was going on. Like, everything was moving so fast. I was terrified. He said... You know, as long as you don't fight, don't do nothing like that, man, you should be good, all right? I told him I didn't believe him. The badass is a very ambitious person. Very addicted and obsessed with power. By him being the warrior he is, he loved conflict. He is powerful. He is indestructible. 
ruthless. He is untouchable. He will always stand on the laws that he lived by. And he will always uphold them with honor. And he is willing to fight to the death to protect everything he stands on and believes in. Win, lose, or draw. He will remain a warrior. He has no emotion. He has no regrets. He has no remorse. He has no guilt. He has no fears. He has the heart of a lion. The Devante is very caring. He's very adventurous. He's very charisma. Free-spirited. He's very loyal to the people that he have around him. He's very lovable. Has a strong set of morals, a good judge of character. He's very humble. At times he can feel loose living in this world. He has dreams and goals. He's a great listener. He loves life, no matter how hard it may get at times. They took me to Juvie after, uh, and it was it was dark out. When they when they took me to Juvie, like I didn't know how serious it was. Um, they did a psychiatric evaluation. I, I, I would say more, but the whole time was a daze. Like it, it felt unreal. You, you in a cell by yourself, but around other people. I had, I had school in the morning, uh, breakfast, lunch, activities. I, I was there like two, two or three months uh, before the trial. Yeah, it was it was very confusing and stressful and I was lost. I didn't like the public defender who came first, uh maybe two times like his main thing was that you know, there was a confession, but I kept telling him I didn't do it. Then my mother got Robert Slamica, who has now been disbarred. My lawyer, Robert Slamica. Every time Slamica would come and see me, it was only for like five minutes. Without any paperwork, and he didn't really say anything. No case files. He'd just say, how you doing, kiddo? You all right? And then tell me we had a court date, which I already knew from the last time I court. I think he was coming to please my mother because she was she was so worried and probably kept calling and asking what was going down. So he'd see me for five minutes probably so he could tell her to calm down, but he didn't bring no type of paperwork or nothing. A three-judge panel determined if they were going to try me as an adult or as a juvenile, and they tried me as an adult. Slamica and I would constantly bump heads because, you know, I said I wanted, like, a jury trial, but he told me not to because I was a black kid from the ghetto and it would be white people from the suburbs who come in here and find me guilty. 
Then he would use my mother's worry and hurt against me. He would tell her he was the caring lawyer and he knows what to do best for me. And how do I say no to my mother when this is the situation I'm facing? At my sentencing date, every time they would ask him something, he would whisper in my ear and say, it was a drug house. And I would just repeat what he was saying in my ear. He kept telling me he was cool with the judge and I, and I wouldn't get that much time. The survivor at Runyon and a witness said it was me, and I was never called on for questioning during the trial. The survivor said it was me because of my voice, because the voice had sounded real young. I, I, had to, I had to stand up at the trial and repeat what he had said, and the survivor said, yeah, that was it. During the trial, they changed it to a guilty plea because they said it would be life in prison if I didn't plead guilty. He said, you're young. You got a shot to get out of prison. And I'm like, I'm young, okay. And when I went and got sentenced, I got 39 years. I feel as if I'm living in a war-torn state. A state that's not torn between the rich or poor, a state that's not torn between religious beliefs, a state that's not torn between political parties, but a state that's torn between the common and uncommon man. A common man is someone who lives by society standards. A common man has no sense of identity, freedom, or self-persist. The common man has learned the fundamental of thinking because society things for him. An uncommon man is someone who lives by his own standards. An uncommon man has no fears when it comes to dreaming and imagining the world that's around him. The common man has a much harder chance of surviving and remaining in existence. The uncommon man has a much better chance of surviving due to the fact that he has the ability to adapt the situation. In order to make it through the whole situation, I must keep my eye open and open wide as possible. I'm too close to miss something this late into this. Ed Jackson. Jackson's kind of set up like uh, Shawshank Redemption with all the bars and it's um, it's really, really loud and it <sighs> smelled horrible. Uh, everyone's talking and screaming and I couldn't sleep. I sat on my bunk and they, they turned off the lights. Once all the lights went off, like, that's when it really hit me. I started crying. I'm like, Whoa. 
And I looked out, and the only thing I could see is bars and concrete. And, and like that's that's when it hit me. You know, I'm in I'm in prison. Uh, I just kept looking at my papers with my sentencing, and my earliest release date is 2046. You know, it's, it was it was hard trying to just like comprehend everything. At the time, it was still moving so fast. I mean, I was in prison in like eight months. Uh, from from the streets to prison in, in eight months. Solitary was like hell. People yelled, banged, they kicked all night, cussing out guards. You could see the other people. When they argue, they beat on walls. It's, it's like a, a mixture of ages. Uh, I was there for behavior, like, you know, cussing, cussing out guards, being unruly. <laughs> you know, I mean, being there was so overwhelming, like it made me do it. One time it was like 11 months in solitary. I, uh, I got into a fight, six months, spent half a week back, uh, back in for another six months, a week, uh, and then 11 months. It's like all together, it was at least like four years in solitary. And there was no visits for loud for my family in solitary. Uh, business was kept from me by the Department of Corrections. Otherwise, my family saw me for like an hour every every month-ish, but never face-to-face, -face, like always through, through glass. My family, my family believed in me, always. A day was like schoolwork, um, and every day was sent to me like in an envelope when I was in solitary, just, you know, for normal school subjects. And I used to write poems too. Uh, some days would be okay, others would be chaos. You know, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what I did. Um, I was in solitary a lot. Some guards were horrible, some nice. You know, they told me I was never getting out of prison. They jumped me many times just to do it. Uh, you know, lots of conflicts. They. They'd say something, I'd act out, they would do what they would do. They said I'd die in prison. There were people I got along with, a lot of, a lot of inmates, uh, some enemies. I, I, I matured, you know, as time passed. Um, I became more conscious of my actions and I learned to read. I was never actually in the same correctional facility as Vincent Smothers, but at one point we were in the same place within the prison compound. And they, they like rolled me in and rolled him out like two days later. Um, I had to move to a level five maximum security prison because of a riot. But, you know, they couldn't have Vincent there when they moved me or we would, we would talk. He said hi a few times and, and he said he's going to get me out of prison. Like he said, I'm in prison for something he did. I, I didn't I didn't know who he was and I didn't petition the Innocence Project like I didn't know what was going on at that point. My name is Vincent Smothers. On September 17th, 2007, Ernest Davis, Nemo, and I shot and killed four people at 19741 Runyon Street in Detroit. 
I had been hired by Leroy Payne to kill Michael Robinson, who lived at 19741 Vermeen Street, over a drug-related dispute. Uh, Nemo and I not only killed Robinson, but three other people who were present in the living room at the time of the hit. We left two survivors in the back bedroom, a young boy who had been sleeping in bed, and a woman who had run from the living room and hid under the bed. I cannot emphasize strongly enough that Devante Sanford was not involved in the killings at 19741 Running Street in any way. Before my arrest by the Detroit Police Department in April 2008, I had never met, spoken with, or even heard of Devante Sanford or anyone connected to him. Devante Sanford is being wrongfully incarcerated for crimes I know he did not commit. No, no, I'm, I'm very grateful for Vincent Smothers. He stepped up to the plate and he took responsibility for his actions. I mean, there are many people in prison for, for murders, carjackings, you know, things like that, that they didn't even do, that their friend did. And, and their friends won't step up and take responsibility. Like, this man didn't have to take responsibility for his actions, you know, to be so adamant about trying to release me. It, it made me look at it different. Now that it's over, I can take a deep breath and just chill. I went through so much in prison, it's ridiculous, Sanford says. From being assaulted multiple occasions by prison guards, not being able to eat two, three days, being strapped down to beds for hours at a time. I've been through so much. I thought all was lost. I never been to homecoming, never been to prom, didn't know how to drive. <laughs> I still don't know how to drive. Do you, like in a cell, you know, like 18 to 23 hours out a day in a cell, like what did you expect to come out of that cell? You know, you like, you like, like what did you expect? Like it's gonna be a monster that comes out of that cell. I came up with a nonprofit organization, like different business plans, stuff like that, helping out juveniles and stuff like that. So, you know, yeah, I want to use my story where, you know, another year, or eight years, or, or uh, ten years, or fifteen years from now, like you won't be interviewing who just got out of my same situation. Getting through it. I didn't have a choice but to get up and face it. It was hard, but I, but I knew there was people out there fighting for me. And I knew one day I'd get out of prison. I just didn't know when, you know, when that would happen or like how long it would take. Uh, I used to look at other cases. I had, I had a book called I'm Innocent. It's like this really big book of wrongful convictions. And it would motivate me, you know, to see other guys when they was wrongfully convicted get out of prison. And I would, I would try to add up the timeline. You know, it took this guy 17 years. It took another guy 30 years. Uh, it took this guy four years. So I'm like, I'm on my eighth year. You know, maybe at the 10-year mark, it'll be happening for me. I had a whole bunch of family support, like especially my mother. And my lawyers have supported me through everything, like Val Newman. I don't, I don't think of her as my mother, but like, I think of her as my, my second mother. 
you know, it wasn't like a lawyer-client relationship. It was like family. They really, they really care about the people that they deal with. It's not, it's not something that they do to make a living. Sometimes when I would go to court, I would think, you know, this is almost over. It looked like, you know, it's, it's almost there. It's looking good. Then deny your papers. I would get in the mail or I would get a call or the judge denied this motion. You know, this is being appealed. Yeah. It's frustrating at times. This is the land of thieves. This is the land of lies. This is the land of hate. This is the land of death. This is the land of envy. This land should be charged with murder for killing millions of dreams. This land is in over its head. It is drowning from the blood of innocent people. That day, I called my mama and she started crying and she told me I was coming home. At first I was like, mama, what's wrong? You know, because she was crying and she's like, you're coming home. And I'm thinking like, this can't be real. Like it, it still hasn't really, really hit me yet. You know, like I thought it was gonna hit me and then I was gonna be able to just get over it. Um, but it like slowly but surely hit me. You know, every time I, I get to open a car door or uh, go into the refrigerator to get some juice. So my mother passed the phone to my lawyer, Val, who said, you know, have you seen the news? Like, you're coming home. And we're trying to get you home very soon, but, like, keep it under wraps for now and don't tell anyone. Uh, but then they immediately called my name over to PA, you know, prisoner Sanford. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Uh, so I go over there and I say, you know, hey, hey, look, like, I'm prisoner Sanford. And they're like, we got prisoner Sanford here over to PA again. And so I'm just like, oh, no. Uh, and the office is like, you know, prisoner Sanford. And I'm like, What's going on? Like, what did I do? Like, I didn't do nothing, man. And he says, yeah, you didn't do anything, man. You coming home today. Like, you got news vans out there, and you're on the news and everything. And as I, as I was leaving, all my friends were seeing me in the yard going like, damn, like, what happened? You know, the guards told them they couldn't get too close to me, and they, they escorted me to the office. Um, and they filled out the paperwork about me, and they, they told me to go to my cell and pack up my things. And, like, I didn't have my much time, so I gave... You know, some of my things away to an older guy. And I left, like, deodorant, food, and all that. And then they came and got me, and they took me to uh, the PC unit. And people were, like, you know, looking, like, damn, bro. You know, like, it was like a walk of shame. And I'm like, what did y'all take me over here for? Like, you, you just told me I'm going home. Uh, and they said, man, we got to put you here for your safety. Uh, so I sat there for a couple hours, and then... After that, they, they came in and unlocked it and walked me out front. Uh, it was unreal, like, unreal. You know, I, I, I couldn't believe it. When I got home, when I got home, the, the ability to have, like, freedom of movement was, was a huge challenge. Uh, the COO of Eastern Market gave me a job like no experience or anything, she, she just wanted to help me. And it was a pretty good job. But uh, dealing with large groups of people, like 
I came from this environment of control, you know, to go into to work immediately in like a big market in downtown Detroit with so many people moving around. Like, people can be really close to you, uh, like physically close to you in ways that they just like, that they can't in prison. And other people reached out and they offered me jobs, but um, yeah, it was a hard adjustment. I think it was a hard adjustment for, for everybody, like coming home, uh, you know, trying to get back to being around people, like reclaim relationships with my mom, my brother. Um, like they had all grown, you know. I didn't, I didn't pick up where they left off, and we, we didn't, we didn't communicate. Like I would do things and they'd be like, you know, what the hell, or like they would do things and I'd be like, what the hell. Um, you know, we just, we, we couldn't communicate then. And my brother uh, thought I was too friendly. Like, you know, you're too kind. Like, don't come home and let your guard down. In order to play a fool, sometimes you got to catch a fool. Uh, yeah, my brother was worried I was too trusting. And he'd be telling me to bark, like, show my teeth. Uh, like, like, my friend owed me money, came over, and asked me to lend him some more, and I did. And my brother told me, like, you know, he told me not to, and, and the friend said that he thought I was joking. Like, he didn't think I actually, that he had to pay me back. Uh, so, yeah, he was, he was worried about me with things like that. I was with friends, and they were like, what's wrong with you? Like, you got, like, 20 backs of gum. And, I mean, we didn't have this in prison. You know, and I, I just, I sat there the whole day yesterday just chewing on different gums. We didn't have that in prison, so just 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 chewing gum feels good. It's better than nothing, Sanford says. But how could you tell me what my experiences and the things I've been through are worth? Since being in prison, my grandma passed away. My little nephew was born. I'm just now learning how to drive. I'm 24 with little to no job experience. I started Innocent Dreams while in prison and then first worked on it as a publication when I got home. Uh, it was my uncle's idea. And it, it talked about like shattered dreams, uh, stories of kids who were murdered, like open cases of shootings, victims, and, and then like rising stars, uh, stories of, of community, like basketball players, 4.0 students, um, like entrepreneurial groups and teenagers who are doing it. And some things about entertainment. Um, I spoke to like 600 kids with, with my brother's keeper uh, through the Obama administration. And I was doing a lot of it for free, but, but one time I got paid by a church. You know, my, my long-term plan is to be an activist, um, you know, to be in the trenches. When I was sitting in my cell and I was going through hell, um, you know, I promised myself that once I got out, I was gonna put all my power into making it possible so my generation won't go through what I've been through. You know, I know what it's like to be snatched away from my mother, my friends, my family. And I don't wanna see kids go through that. I know there's a better way and I, I wanna be the one to help guide them through that. And, find their paths and, you know, make something of themselves. What is the true definition of a warrior? 
Is it his muscles? Or is it the way he thinks when it comes to strategies? What is the true definition of a warrior? Is it his body count? Or is it the way he shows restraint under very tense conditions? What is the true definition of a warrior? Is it the sword and shield? Or is it his heart? Everybody talks about building this bridge, um, you know, or like building this building. It's the future of Detroit. It's, it's for our future. But what about the youth of Detroit? You know, without the youth of Detroit, like Detroit won't have a future. Invest in the kids, you know, like show them there's people out there that really care. Don't get mad if they have a slip up and give up on them. Like as long as they're trying, like that's all that matters, you know. And sometimes it may take them three, four, five, six times. Once you make a person um, conscious of, of their decision making and like the consequences, like I guarantee you a lot of kids will start to try. You know, because they don't they don't want to go to the place where I just came from. It's hell. They tell you when to eat, when you take a shower. You know, if they don't want you to eat, then you're not gonna eat. If they don't want you to take a shower, you're not gonna take a shower. You know, and then what? Like you're gonna you're gonna call and tell your mother, like they don't care about that. Like they'll rip your mail up. It's it's, it's crazy. Like the, the same people that tell us the right and wrong thing to do, they go out and do something and it's okay for them to do it. You know, like it's consequences for us, but not for them. It's, 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 it's totally wrong. I don't have faith in the system, but like you have to remember it was people in the system who worked to get my case overturned. You know, the state police, the lawyers, so. I don't have faith in the system, but there are people in the system who do care. The Tigers game. The river walks. Um, being able to hug my little nephew and like chase him around the house. Being able to see and talk to my mother and like hug her whenever I want. Like it's not no 15 minute phone calls anymore. I can call whenever I want. I can go talk to my brother. Being free. Yeah. Being free. Being free. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Innocent Dreams. We encourage listeners to support our partner organization, Living on Purpose Atlanta. Living on Purpose ATL Incorporated is a 501c3 organization that will provide formerly incarcerated women with employment opportunities, life skills training, counseling, education, and housing to help them overcome some of the challenges they face upon re-entering and give them a greater chance to succeed. We invite you to donate at lopatl.org. You can also get to the website through linktr.ee slash innocentdreams, which is also available in our Instagram bio. Our handle is innocentdreamsplay. In addition to Devante's testimony and poetry, information for this radio play was taken from Jeff Warniak's 
Life After Innocence for Our Detroit. The Detroit News' comprehensive coverage of the case, Devontae Sanford's Road to Freedom, and WXYZ-TV's coverage of Devontae's first public appearance after being released. This radio play was read by Austin Scott as Devontae, Alexis Apeda as the reporter, and me, Austin Williamson, as Russell and Smothers. It was directed and adapted by Megan Rifkin. Original music was composed and performed by Chandra Hall Bloomfield. Sound design is by Ramon Fernandez, and the cover art was created by Talik Tillman Vigil. Special thanks to Abby Brenner and Kevin Doyle.